Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. Hi, happy Halloween, and welcome to an extra spooky edition of Opera Happy Hour. My name is Jeremy Frank, and I am the Associate Chorus Master at LA Opera. And if you haven't guessed, I wanted to get a little playful and explore some of opera's craziest death scenes. Of course, I took inspiration from the twin holidays of Halloween and Dia de los Muertos, but if you think about it, death is featured prominently throughout the entire operatic canon. In fact, it is one of the dramatic structures that composers most frequently turn to, either to depict the pinnacle of interpersonal conflict or simply to offer us, the audience, a cathartic and transformative emotional experience surrounding the most universal of all human experiences. When composers get this perfectly right, we're left with the unrivaled final acts of operas like La Traviata, La Boheme, and Madame Butterfly, and I defy you to watch those operas without shedding a tear at the end. Sometimes our composer friends depict deaths that are spooky, strange, or extreme. Take, for instance, Antonia, the young woman uh, at the end of Offenbach's Tales of Hoffman, who loves to sing, but has a mysterious illness that causes her singing to kill her. Or Richard Strauss's Electra, who triumphantly dances herself to death while celebrating her father's murder being avenged by her brother. Or there's the untimely demise of Verdi's sweethearts Aida and Radames, who are buried alive together in an ancient Egyptian tomb so that they don't have to face the living world without each other. Then there are the operatic deaths that seem crazy or even funny to our modern sensibilities, and it's these deaths that we'll be mining in tonight's episode. A wonderful friend and pianist from San Francisco Opera wisely says that one should only drink for joyful reasons, never sorrowful ones. We'll do just that by focusing on the lighter side of death. And we'll celebrate Halloween uh, our drink pairing is also inspired by that. I thought I'd have a Cuba Libre, but one that swaps in Captain Morgan's spiced rum for the usual ingredient, light rum. I swear, this is not product placement here. Uh, but according to Encyclopedia Britannica, the real Captain Morgan was a Welsh privateer, which if you didn't know what that was, and I did not, that is a government-sanctioned pirate. So... Uh, if you've got something wet to, uh, you know, wet your whistle, go and get it right now. And if you've been dying to break out that Halloween costume, this is the perfect chance to cheers. The first crazy operatic death we will explore comes from Henry Purcell's opera Dido and Aeneas, which was written in London in 1689. The story of this opera is based on book four of Virgil's Aeneid. And at the beginning of the piece, Dido, who is the queen of Carthage, is, in her own words, quote, pressed with torment, unquote, because of the presence of the Trojan guest Aeneas. In contemporary English, she's got the hots for him pretty bad. Dido's lady-in-waiting, Belinda, and the rest of her court try to encourage Dido to marry Aeneas because it would be good for the fortunes of Carthage. 
And sure enough, Dido and Aeneas fall in love. But one day, as they are leaving a grove of trees, an evil elf, feigning to be the god Mercury, stops Aeneas. Uh, and he uh, says that Jove is commanding Aeneas to leave Carthage immediately and found a new city in Italy. In reality, the elf is in the employ of the sorceress who is intent on bringing about both Dido and Aeneas's demises. She knows that if Aeneas leaves her, it will destroy Dido. Sure enough, in Act 3, Aeneas tells Dido that though he is reluctant to leave her, he must obey the god's will. As predicted, even the slightest doubt that Aeneas could possibly entertain the thought of leaving her is enough to be fatal to Dido. She forever dismisses him from her presence, and in one of the truly great moments of all opera, she sings the aria, When I am laid in earth, and quite literally grieves herself to death. While you might assume that this would be an open invitation to overacting of the highest order, in fact, the beautiful efficiency that Purcell employs, musically and dramatically, is what makes the moment so profound. Purcell writes a ground bass, or a short recurring melodic ostinato for the bass instruments that serves as a meditative and structural element for the composition. The ground bass is so ubiquitous as a compositional technique that you've heard it without even knowing it, ranging all the way from Pachelbel's canon to the Eagle's song, Hotel California. As this excerpt starts, you'll hear the ground bass by itself, providing an introduction to the aria. Though it only lasts four measures, it holds the dark, hypnotic fate of Dido's final farewell. Oh. 
Our next crazy opera death comes from Giacomo Puccini's Manon Lescaut, which was written in 1893. The piece is based on a novel by the Abbé Prévost, and I'm here to admit that I've always been a little confused between this opera and another one by Jules Massenet, simply called Manon. If you share my confusion, there's plenty of good reason for that. Massenet's version of Manon is based on exactly the same source material and premiered only nine years earlier. One of the biggest differences between the two pieces, though, is Puccini's over-the-top ending, which is exactly why I zeroed in on it for tonight's show. Manon Lescaut is Puccini's third opera written when he was only 34 years old, and it was his first major success. The story, in a nutshell, is this. One day in Amiens, France, the student Des Grieux meets the beautiful passenger of a stagecoach, a young woman named Manon, who is being uh, transported from her family's very sheltered home to a convent. The second she steps out of the coach, he is smitten with her, and she herself is intoxicated by the possibilities of a wider world than she has ever known before. Before you know it, the two young lovers take off in the carriage without the rest of the passengers, thus thwarting Manon's dad's plans for her. The pair escapes to Paris, where they live together in relatively humble means, but eventually they run out of money, and Manon and Descrieux break up. Manon becomes, then, the mistress of a rich man named Géronte, largely out of necessity to support herself in Paris. For several months, she lives unhappily, pining for Descrieux. When her true love returns, it's clear that their feelings have never changed for one another. Géronte seems to grant Manon the freedom to go back to her first love and former life, but when she packs up the jewels and dresses that he's given her as gifts so that they can leave, soldiers suddenly appear. In reality, Géronte has called the authorities and accused Manon of stealing from him. She's taken to the port city of Le Havre to await her trial and possible banishment to a penal colony in New Orleans. Of course, she is found guilty, and Descrieux begs the captain of the ship to grant him passage to America with her. Now, Act 4 of the opera is where American audiences tend to giggle about the Abbé Prévost and Puccini's profound ignorance of the New World. Descrieux and Manon have fled New Orleans in order to seek refuge in a British settlement. They get hopelessly lost in the quote-unquote vast deserts that Puccini assumed surround New Orleans in every direction. Manon is the first to start to succumb to thirst, and Descrieux tries to go off to find water and get help. Manon then sings the aria Sola Perduta Abbandonata, which I'm about to sing for you, and which translates Alone, Forgotten, and Abandoned. You may have noticed that Manon is something of a needy and drama-filled girlfriend to have. Anyway, she starts throwing herself a pity party, cursing her fatal beauty which got her into this mess in the first place, and she says over and over again that she doesn't want to die. Returning without water, Descrieux assures Manon how beautiful she once was and watches, overcome with grief, as Manon expires. Then he promptly collapses across her corpse as the curtain falls. 
I would never poke fun of my beloved art form of opera, but you've got to admit, this is a scene best viewed through a very soft focus lens, so that you can turn yourself over to the exquisite beauty of Puccini's music, which is there in no small part. Because of that, I've left this aria untranslated, and I invite you to feast your ears on this gorgeous piece of music, which sounds a little something like this. Oh. 
non voglio morir, no, 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 no voglio morir, amore ai The most spectacular crazy opera death comes from the relatively minor composer Alfredo Catalani's opera La Valle, premiered in 1892. The title of the opera looks like it should be pronounced Wally, but actually Valle is the nickname of the title character, Valburga, obviously. Anyway, the story of the opera was based on an episode in the life of an actual woman and is set in the Austrian Tyrolean Alps, a random-seeming fact that will soon become critically important. When we first meet Vali, we see her as a beautiful young woman in desperate love with a man named Hagenbach, who just happens to be her father's enemy. It is the celebration of her father's 70th birthday, and a jealous interloper, Gellner, exposes Vali's obvious attraction to Hagenbach to her dad. Of course, this goes over terribly, and good old dad gives her an ultimatum. Either she marry this Gellner jerk in the next month, or she must leave his house forever. Anyone who has seen an after-school special from the 1980s can predict how that's going to turn out. The conflict prompts the most famous and beautiful aria from this show, E ben ne andrò lontana, which means, fine then, I'll go far away, which is her response to her stubborn father. Though this aria was originally not written for this show, Catalani knew when he had written a hit, and so he plagiarized himself by including this aria in this show. I want to sing an excerpt of the aria for you now, Mostly so that I don't feel terribly guilty when we giggle at the end of the opera in a few minutes. Take a listen to our friend Catalani's best work.
A year has passed in the story, and sadly, Vali's father has passed away. But that's not the opera death we need to pay attention to. Although Vali would be free to pursue her old flame, Hagenbach seems to have moved on, and he's actually engaged to an innkeeper woman named Ofra. Some big-time junior high school relationship twists and turns take place, but things take a decidedly creepy turn when, feeling humiliated and rejected, Vali approaches Gellner, the guy her dad wanted her to marry, to take out a hit on Hagenbach, who she actually loves. Vali's fiery temper quickly cools off, but by the time she regrets her anger, Gellner tells her that he has already thrown Hagenbach into a deep snowy ravine in the mountains. Vali runs to Hagenbach to try to save him. She lowers herself down on a rope into the ravine, and she successfully raises his unconscious body back to the surface and takes him to town to recover. Deeply depressed, Vali retreats back to the mountains for weeks and contemplates taking her own life. Suddenly, she hears Hagenbach, who has recovered from his injuries and has come to confess that he's been in love with her the whole time. They decide to descend the mountain together, him leading the way to find a safe path. But when he shouts back up to Vali, telling her which way to go, the noise of his shouting causes an avalanche, and he is swept away to his death. And I know you're thinking that that's the great opera death, but wait for it. Seeing her lover die in an avalanche, Vali stands on the edge of the precipice and throws her body into the avalanche after his, joining her lover forever in death. You've got to hand it to Catalani. That's an exciting and a dramatic climax. In a way, it's really a shame that it's nearly impossible to stage an actual avalanche conventionally uh, without wiping out the first several rows of patrons. Otherwise, you know, we might be more familiar with this melodramatic ending. Uh, once again, I've decided it's maybe better not to translate this excerpt into English for you, in part because I didn't want for the inadvertent humor of this story to be too on the nose. But you will need to know one very important Italian word, which is lavalanga. Um, apparently, that avalanche sounds something like this. Giuseppe Ovesian boy, sei sul mio cor, qual cupo oscurità, ruggi il mortol, amor mio sola qui non mi lasciar. Redenzevo cercando il desiato sentiero del ritorno. Valli mi chiama Toro, il sentiero è scomparso, ahimè, fa cor. Discendi per le rocce e la valanga.
tuo silenzio l'amor laggiù. you found that as entertaining as I did and that it's gotten you both in the spirit of Halloween and warned you about the dangers of singing opera in the winter in the Alps. And in the meantime, until I see you again, happy Halloween, happy Dia de los Muertos, and uh, stay happy, stay healthy, and cheers. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on Apple iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Remember to share with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera.